This is the weekly message from Hope Church Malmesbury. We're so glad you can join us. This week's sermon is part of our series, The Promise and the Purpose. We're walking slowly through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, promise by promise. Find out more about Hope Church and how to support our ministry at www.thehope.church. I hope this message will help you to see the good purpose that God has for your life and help you to walk in faith and rely on his promises every day. Here's the message. Okay, hopefully we're live to the nation and the nations today, so sorry about that because we can't edit it out. (laughs) But um, you know what? I was so busy enjoying the worship, getting in there with Jesus, holy and anointed one, the word, that... um, I didn't want to stop for another drink of water. So there you go. Here we go. Let's get into it today. Now, many times I've told you before that, um, well, first of all, you all know that I don't like to tell jokes at the beginning of my sermon. They kind of fall flat and I'm not really very good at it. And I said to Mark, what is the point of jokes at the beginning of the sermon? And he said, it's a warm-up. So I've come up with a different warm-up for you, okay? What we're going to do this morning is we're going to say a very short creed together aloud uh, because it kind of goes well with what we're going to be thinking about in the sermon. And also because I just love it. So as we speak these words, I want them to go deep down into your heart. These words are from the Shepherd's Grove Creed of the Beloved. Many of you know that I watch the Hour of Power before I come to church. You should do so too. If you've got nothing else to have on in the background, have that on. I really love it. It's nine o'clock till 10 o'clock. Still got time to get here. (laughs) Watch it. Uh, But if you don't want to watch it, that's fine. But I'm telling you, This creed is going to change your life, and I suggest you take it home, start speaking it over your own life daily. It doesn't have to be a Sunday thing. So let's just say this together. I'm not what I do. Is it on there? Uh, Yeah, okay. Okay, this means we speak aloud. Okay, you don't have to shout, but, but join in. Okay, right. I'm not what I do. I'm not what I have. I'm not what people say about me. I am the beloved of God. It's who I am. No one can take it from me. I don't have to worry. I don't have to hurry. I can trust my friend Jesus and share his love with the world. Now, as I wrote it out for you this morning, I couldn't find a printed copy, so I had to actually write it out. Um, it went deep down into my heart. And I hope it has for you too. Because to be honest, if you leave now, you've got something. You've got that. And it is life-changing if you believe it. And it is nothing if you don't. Let's get into the scripture this morning. In fact, let's pray. Father God, I pray that you will open every mind and heart. Lord God, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you will open your word to your people, Lord God, that you will make it life and breath and uh, that it will go out and do all that it is accomplished to do. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So let's have a look. We're walking through Luke and we're in Luke chapter 7, verse 11 to 17. Let's have a look. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. 
As he drew, by the way, the he is Jesus. You haven't all been following along every week. That's who we're talking about. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Okay, so Luke tells us at the beginning of this that Jesus went to a town called Nain, which is an Arab village in northern Israel located in Lower Galilee, about eight miles south of Nazareth for those geeky ones who like to know those things. But interestingly, a few miles from Nain, there was an ancient town called Shunem. It once stood there, just a few miles away from Nain. Now, in Jesus' day, Shunem no longer existed. And Nain was the town that the Shunemites, the people who lived in Shunem, mostly lived now. So most of Shunem had been absorbed into Nain. Are you all with me still? Good. Okay. Because the reason I bring this up is those of you who know your Bible may already have recognized the word Shunemite. And you will recognize the fact that the town of Shunem was where Elisha had raised a woman's dead son back to life 800 years before we read this in Luke. So you can read the Elisha account, his, his adventures in Shunem, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 4. But I just mention it in passing because I think it's fascinating. Elisha raised a dead boy and restored him to his mother in the same locality amongst the same people group that Jesus would raise a young man from death, restoring his son to his mother. Isn't that awesome? And that's all I can tell you about it now because I wasted a lot of time writing a lot of notes over it and there's way more important stuff to get into. So let's carry on. Okay, the name, Nain, which is where Jesus is, means beauty or pleasantness. In Hebrew, it was understood as green pastures or loveliness. Are you starting to hear some of the songs coming back to you yet? Okay, keep going. Um, Nain may have earned its name because of its location, high on a hill with breathtaking views across the plain to Carmel, over the hills of Nazareth. Well, I love a good view, and that sounds like a very beautiful place, so we understand its name. Now, I can't help thinking, it's known as green pastures, so I can't help thinking of Psalm 23. Now the songs are coming back to you. <laughs> So let me just read to you a couple of parts of Psalm 23. I'm not jumping into the whole of it. But the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That means I don't need for anything, okay? He looks after me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Here we are in Nain, green pastures. He restores, 
my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It is encompassed right there in in, in, in Nain, in the activity that we see that happens in Nain, in this story that I've just read you from Luke 7. Psalm 23 comes to life in Nain, as does the boy. And as does our worship, now you realise, goodness, oh, your goodness is running after me. Your goodness is running after me. We just sang it. Please hold that in your head because that's probably the main point of my sermon as well. So, here, in the green pastures of Nain, The good shepherd Jesus rescues a young man from the valley of death. God's goodness and mercy are seen openly demonstrated in the miracle that takes place in today's story. So we read, Jesus arrives in the beautiful town of Nain and we read that his disciples are with him and a great crowd are with him. So a great crowd have followed him across country here. Just maybe he gathers them along the way, I don't know. But there's a great crowd. This is way more than just 12 friends hanging out. Okay, and they've come into this little town of Nain, this beautiful place, and this great crowd following Jesus meet this great crowd of a funeral procession. And Luke tells us that the funeral is for the only son of his mother, a widow, verse 12. Now, compared to now, Jesus' culture is still an ancient culture. I just took you back to Elisha, which is even more ancient. So I just want to kind of point out, I know you realise this, but sometimes we read the Bible and we forget how ancient the culture is. So I just want to say that. And I want to say that I need to put it into context just a little bit for you. Because this woman is described as a mother and a widow, And he was her only son, and he's dead. Women alone did not do well in that time and culture. In fact, women had no rights and no ability to decently provide for themselves. This means that after the funeral, after the mourners have all left, that mourning mother would be destitute. She'd have no means of provision or support unless a a member of her wider family took her on. Think Kingsman, Redeemer, think Ruth. Not only had she lost her son, but she'd lost her security and her provision too. Perhaps she didn't know what was going to happen even the next day. Yet, what I love about today's scripture is that this woman is just dealing with her horrible day. She is just living her worst life. And she's completely oblivious to who has just stepped into the world around her, into her orbit. She's walking literally through the valley of the shadow of death with no hope, with no way out of her situation that she could even imagine. But God has seen her. Verse 13, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And that is today's first and most important teaching point for you. God sees you and has compassion on you. 
In this miracle story, please notice nobody asks Jesus for anything. This makes it quite unusual amongst the miracle stories, okay? And nobody is described as having faith or believing for a miracle. This miracle in today's story comes out of the heart of Jesus. His compassion moves him into the miracle. The boy was dead. He could not request his healing. He couldn't believe or have faith that would save him. And the mother was consumed in grief and most likely unaware of the presence of Jesus. But what we learn from this encounter is that God sees you. He has compassion on you, even when you're oblivious to his presence. I mean, I hope it's touching your heart as deeply as it touched mine to realize that. You know, many times a Christian will say, I am believing for my miracle. I've said it myself, which in itself sounds like a good thing. And by the way, is a good thing. Don't let me knock you off that, but go on this journey with me because this is really important. So what that means is I'm believing for my miracle means they are reading scripture, applying and speaking promises of God from the scripture over their situation, and they are living in expectation of a manifestation, that means it coming real in their lives of the promise that they've been speaking over their situation, okay? And that is great until it's not, until it leads to frustration and disappointment. There's a, um, a Bible teacher I know who's, she's this, you know, this big kind of Caribbean type woman. She's kind of, she walks around um, barefoot, doesn't she? Uh, do you know who I'm talking about? Maybe not. Okay, she goes, I'm keeping it real. I'm keeping it real. And guys, I want to keep it real today. Because the truth is, when I'm believing for my miracles, sometimes it can lead to frustration and disappointment. I'm keeping it real. The dictionary defines disappointment as sadness or displeasure caused by the non-fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations. Disappointment couldn't be a better word for this situation, right? And disappointment easily grows when you are believing for a specific miracle that doesn't seem to be manifesting, coming true in your life. You get a sadness caused by unfulfilled hope. And I have known many people who have left the faith because of unfulfilled hopes and disappointments. Because of unfulfilled hopes, sorry, and expectations. So I just want us to take a moment here in the middle of the sermon, and I'm sorry to do this because it's not actually what the story's about, but I really felt we have to because I believe God is moving us into a new season. And I believe that God is moving us into a season of miracles. Hallelujah. So please know this. Okay, this is the truth behind what I'm about to say. But this is so important because God really placed it on me. I have written, I've written a whole other document that might become a book, I don't know, on this, on this, that I'm about to try and tell you in a few moments, okay, in just a few minutes worth of, of message. Please know how much I've, I've tarried over this, and I don't say it lightly, but I think it's really important that we get this, okay, because faith is essential, but when it's upon a specific outcome, it's limiting. You've put God in a box. You've said, this outcome is what I am believing for. This is where my faith is, is in this box, What would life be like if you put your full faith in the fact that God sees you, God has compassion on you, and God wants the best for you? 
Romans 5 verse 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You don't need to be disappointed over an as yet unfulfilled hope when you're better aware of God's love for you. Do you see that? Romans 5 verse 5. I think that some of us, somewhere along the walk of faith, and I have definitely slipped into there myself, have slipped just a little bit. We've muddled having faith for a miracle with having faith in God's best for us. Now, I understand that you think that the best for you is that exact miracle. (laughs) (laughs) That one you're hoping for, that one you're believing for. So in your mind, God's best is the same as that exact miracle. God's best for me is this miracle. But what if you just don't know as much as God does? Just putting it out there. I think God wants us to just take a moment today and adjust our faith priorities. Because I think he wants us to start putting more hope and expectation into the fact that he is a good God and has compassion on us and has good plans for us and his goodness is running after me as you just sang in faith than on what he can do for us. And I think we have got muddled and I think the church is in danger of looking at what he does rather than who he is and accepting what he does as an an example of his love. Please don't get me wrong. I have to say it again. It's in my notes and I'm not going to skip it. I'm not saying that hoping or praying for something is wrong. It's obviously right, okay? But I think we've lost sight of the first true miracle, which is that we are accepted and that we can even do that, that we can even approach Father God, Almighty God, creator of the universe. You get to approach him. Hang on a minute. The first miracle is the fact that we even get to come close to him to ask and to have faith and to believe in those things that he promises. I think too many times we accidentally equate the move of God as the love of God. And that can take us to a very dark place because if we don't perceive a move of God on our behalf, then we can feel very unloved by God. And that's the truth. And I think Esther was moved in her spirit to cry during the worship a little bit because that's how God feels. God wants us to accept his love. His love. Love, number one. He loves you. He sees you. He has compassion on you. That means he is moved in sympathy towards you. Okay, and that requires what? Nothing from you. Psalm 147 verse 11 says, The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in in his works, in his unfailing love. Hallelujah. Put your hope in his unfailing love. Unfailing is the important word here. Not love like somebody does to you where they go off you sometimes because you're a bit naughty or annoying or whatever. Not that. Unfailing. Unfailing. Failing means something hasn't been accomplished and hasn't been done, but unfailing means it will be. 
Hallelujah. I hope you're getting this. I'm so excited um, because I know that there is, I almost see it like, um, like a piece, I'm sorry, I like crafting. I do crochet and cross stitch and things like that. So anyone who does like that might like to see it like that. Um, it's like I'm picking some of the stitches that shouldn't have gone in that direction, going back just a little way to get us going in the right direction. So I hope this is working for you because I believe that God wants us to get today more than anything else and that we will live out a more peaceful and joyful experience of life if we get this truth fully in our heart today. So God sees you and has compassion on you. Take that in. Okay, let's go back to Luke 7 verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. He had compassion for the woman and he spoke to her, do not weep. And I just can't help thinking about Jesus's own mother who would one day stand as a widow at her son Jesus's death, at his crucifixion, and she would weep. And on that day, Jesus would ensure his mother's protection for the future by using some of his very last breaths to tell his apostle John to take care of his mother. And that moves me as the, as the mother of a son, that moves me, it really does. And here, in today's passage, Jesus sees another heartbroken, widowed mother, and his heart is moved towards her. It's beautiful. Then, verse 14, he came up and touched the beer, and the bearers stood still. Now, let me just tell you what a beer is, and I am saying it right, apparently, although it sounds wrong every time I say it. Can't get over it. Um, <laughs> it's like a stretcher. It's a movable frame on which a dead body is placed to be carried to the grave. So like an open coffin without sides, okay? And Jesus touched that. Jesus touched the beer. Now, let's get some context again here. Under Jewish law, interacting with dead bodies was strictly forbidden. It would make a person unclean. The law says in Numbers 19 verse 11, whoever touches the body, the dead body, sorry, of any person, shall be unclean seven days. Jesus knows it will make him unclean. But he still reaches out and touches the beer. Verse 14, then he came up and touched the beer, and the bearers stood still. I think they were probably shocked. It's like, a passerby just came up and touched the beer. People don't do that. That makes them unclean. That can't happen. So I suspect it was like, they're walking and, did you see that? It reminds me of the scene in Disney's Finding Nemo when all Nemo's friends are watching, looking shocked as Nemo swims out towards a boat which they mistakenly call a butt. Then he turns and he looks at them defiantly and gives the boat a flick with his fin. They all look shocked and one of them says, oh, he touched the butt. Jesus shocked the crowds. He touched the beer. In doing this, Jesus demonstrated my second point for today. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8 verse 38 to 39 says, For I am sure, it's not what I think it might be true, but I am sure that neither death 
death does not separate us, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Jesus showed that his compassion would move him to even make himself unwillingly, I mean, sorry, willingly unclean. He made himself willingly unclean when he touched the beer. Then he spoke to the dead boy. Have you noticed how Jesus makes a habit of this? He goes around speaking to dead bodies quite a lot, if you read the Gospels. Um, And he talks to them as if they're alive. So here he is, Luke 7, verse 14. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. He just speaks to the boy as if he can hear and respond. It's the same as me going, Mark, stand up. I know he can hear me and respond by ignoring me. (laughs) But that's okay. But Jesus talks to the boy as if he can respond because Jesus' voice, his words, carry over all physical and spiritual barriers. Death will not stop the work of Jesus. So point number three, Jesus is the word, we are told in John, and we must speak the word to our physical and spiritual barriers or blockages. Personally, I reckon that Jesus didn't actually need to use words in order to raise the dead, but there was more in his use of words than a command to a dead boy. For example, words prepared the listeners of what was about to happen. Words gave the mother an immediate opportunity for hope before the miracle. Words made the devil aware of what he was about to do, what was about to happen. Yep, you don't get this boy today. And words are the way the world was created. Because words are God's creative, miraculous method. Words are powerful. Yet as Christians, we just don't use words correctly enough. In fact, some of us don't use them well at all. Either because we feel we should be quiet and calm and shh, don't make a fuss. Or, and I think more likely, which is a shame, because we're afraid that if we put our hope out there into words, it will not come about like blowing out candles on a birthday cake with a wish. If you tell your wish, it's not going to come true, right? But this is not a life of wishing. This is a life of faith. And words are an important part of that. And let's be really honest. I want to keep it real, guys. We're going to keep it real today. Let's be honest. When we have struggles or difficulties of any kind, we do actually use words. We're using words all the time. We report our symptoms to the doctor and the neighbour, and the postman. (laughs) Or we tell a friend about our difficulty, and we might use a lot of words in that situation because we want to describe every part of the situation so that they understand better. We're using words. And if you're like me, and you get to know me very well in these sermons, don't you? Um, You might even mutter to yourself (laughs) with all sorts of cynical or irritated exclamations. Stupid... (laughs) Don't you? Come on, be honest. We're using words. 
So words are already part of our most distressing moments. So let's just try and change the words we're using. Stop using words of the enemy that steal, kill, or destroy your faith. Instead, speak the word of God about your troubles. And this is not, let me be clear, wishful thinking. It's a spiritually significant thing that you can actually do. And we all want to do something to fix something, don't we? We want to do something. And to be honest, most of it you can't do, but this you can do. You can speak God's power and promises God's word over your situation. Remember, Jesus is the word you can speak. Jesus over your situation or worry or confusion or sickness. God's word is designed to be spoken out loud, not hidden away in your wishing well. And have you noticed how there are non-Christians, and I've come across a few, so maybe it's just me, maybe it's the people I mix with, I don't know, um, who attribute a lot of power to the universe. Have you noticed this? The universe. Ah, the universe brought it to me. (laughs) Like... It's like a big force pulling good things into your orbit or pushing them out of reach. That's how that I think they see it. I don't know. I've not got into it very deeply. But it, it sounds to me like we're all rocks of some sort and you kind of attract things or you repel them like a magnet, okay? Let me tell you, the universe cannot argue with the word of God, the creator of the universe. So even if that's your basic belief, the word of God comes in and changes things. And when you speak the word of God, you do indeed wield a great magnetic type power if you want to see it like that. It's a powerful force, the word of God. When you speak the word of God, you repel the enemy and you attract the naturally supernatural outworking of God's promises. Remember, God sees you God has compassion on you. Nothing can separate you from God's love, so talk like it. Child of God, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. That's the Holy Spirit. Let me be clear, that's God's spirit. That is the spirit of creator God who used words to bring forth life in the beginning, and he empowers your words to bring forth life and death too. Proverbs 18 verse 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. James 3 warns that we should take control of our speech because it's that powerful. Psalms tells us that God's word is a lamp to our feet. Thank you for that other song that told us that too. Um, (laughs) So on it goes. Um, What I love about Psalm 119 verse 130, I'm going to say it for you guys, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts under understanding to the simple. So hallelujah. If you feel a bit simple and you can't manage life, well, you're going to get understanding. When you start using the words of God and you put them into your mouth, it will change everything and your understanding will grow. Joshua 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then... You will make your way prosperous, and then 
you will have good success. So God told Joshua, fill your mind and your mouth. Remember, words are in your mind as well. So don't just be thinking about what's coming out of your mouth, although most of us probably need to work on that a bit more than, but no, no, because what's going on in secret is probably even worse. Um, So yeah, but fill your mind with God's word as well. And then you will stay, it says in the promise to Joshua, within his will, and you will have what? Good success. Hallelujah. That's what we all want. And Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the Word of God is living and active. This means the Word will do something. It's living, it's active, it, you know, something, it's not dead like the boy in the beginning of the story. Okay, so they're not dusty, lifeless words on an ancient page. So best of all, the words of God accomplish what they're sent out to do. Isaiah 55 verse 10 to 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, But water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word. So just like the rain, so shall my word. Be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it, says God. The word of God, I love this, is as natural and powerful and simple as rain. It will do the work it was sent out to do. When the word is poured out, you'll see that where it lands, things are refreshed. What you pour it out over, things will start to grow new, good things. And people are satisfied simply through the word of God. So please speak the word of God to break through physical and spiritual barriers. So Jesus spoke, and the boy got up and started to speak. Um, I'm not going to go into that much, although I can't help but say, I wonder what he said. I mean, literally, it says he got up and began to speak. I mean, was he in the middle of a conversation in the afterlife? I don't know. And and thinks he's finishing it and goes, oh, no, here we are. Um, So I don't know. I love it. But have you noticed how Jesus has a habit of breaking up funerals? There's a story about 19th century American evangelist D.L. Moody who was asked to conduct a funeral service. So apparently in preparation for this funeral service, he decided to study the Gospels to find a funeral sermon that Jesus had delivered. However, all Moody actually discovered was that every funeral Jesus attended, he broke it up by raising the dead. (laughs) So, because I got goosebumps there. Um, (laughs) So this brings me to part two of today's sermon. And don't worry, it's much shorter than part one. Um, Stick with me. We've only got a page left. (laughs) Because an evangelist will take every opportunity to share the gospel message to unbelievers. So let me just make a bit like Moody today and take this opportunity to share the gospel message that I think this passage illustrates so very well. In fact, although I believe it's a true encounter, and I 100% believe it's a true encounter that happened with Jesus, it's a great allegory for the actual gospel message. And the gospel message, you may have heard the word gospel message and not realise, all it means is the good news, the good news of Jesus. So at the start of today's story, the boy was dead. And guess what? Before Jesus, we're all dead in our sin. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Sin means that you can't be with God the Father. Sin is death. The boy's funeral was filled with mourners. And there are many mourners 
for those that are still dead in their sin. Because friends and family who know friends and family who are not walking with the Lord mourn, I promise you. You worry, you travail, you're sad, you're worried about them because you know that there's only one end to life and it all goes through Jesus if you're going to carry on because then there's no end to life. But I'm getting confused. Let's go back to my, go back to here because you know what? Do you know what? When you tell the gospel, you can get easily muddled. And let me tell you why. Because the devil does not want the, the, the gospel to get out there. So if I sound a bit muddled occasionally, that's what's going on in my mind. Literally, I have... Do you think you're alone in having things that fly at you? They're coming in and out all the time. I'm just batting them off. I'm here spiritually like this, by the way. In case you're wondering why I move around so much, why I move my hands around so much, half the time I'm just batting off the the, the thoughts that come at me that aren't actually going to help people. So I hope I haven't wandered where I shouldn't. Um, But as Spurgeon said, the spiritually dead cause great grief to their gracious friends. For this grief, there is only one helper, but he can truly help. Hallelujah. So there are mourners. Nobody asked Jesus for anything in today's story. He just acted out of compassion. And guess what? Jesus acted out of compassion for all of us too. He tells those who weep for us, our friends and our family who pray for us, do not weep, he says. Because Jesus reached out and touched the beer. He touched um, the carrying item of the dead person. He allowed himself to become unclean in order to save the young man. And guess what? He reached out his arms on a cross, which was a criminal's death, and he allowed himself to be made unclean to save us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember, sin makes us dead, but Jesus came and took that sin upon himself. He made himself unclean so that we could be raised up and righteous and, and, and acceptable to God. Jesus became my sin to release me to be righteous. He made himself unclean in my dirty rags of sin so that I could be dressed in his perfect clothes and come fully acceptable to the Father, which is why all of this that I told you is true. So Jesus gave the Son back to his mother, fully restored in the story, right? And Jesus gives us back to the Father God, fully restored. And it's only because of Jesus that all the points I've made in the sermon today are true. So let me remind you of those points. God sees you, and he has compassion on you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Jesus is the manifest word of God. That means he's the word of God in person. Speak the word of God to break through physical and spiritual barriers. If you have never come to God through Jesus, that means accepting his sacrifice on the cross as the way of salvation and the way that you can now freely approach God, the Father, anytime you want and the way that you get to be filled with his spirit and have all this power coming out of your mouth with your words. I want to, t- I want to give you that opportunity right now. So you're going to pray with me. And I'd like us in this room, unless you don't want to pray, and let me say to you, do not speak out words to God that you do not mean. So if you'd rather not, please stay silent. Put your mask on. No one will know whether you're speaking or not. Um, 
<laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to speak out the words. If you can read them, I'm sorry, I don't know what's happened to the screen today. So uh, we're going to try and read them out loud. Um, and people at home, the words are there for you as well, I'm sure. So let's pray this together now. This is a prayer coming to God, accepting his compassion for us and accepting the life that he brings us through his crucifixion. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you see me, you have compassion on me, and that you made yourself unclean for me when you died on the cross for me. Come into my heart, forgive me of my sin, make me right in God's sight, wash me, cleanse me, set me free. Fill me with your Holy Spirit to help me live out your plans for me. Thank you that nothing can separate me from God's love. I'm saved, I'm born again, I'm forgiven, and I'm on my way to heaven because I have Jesus in my heart. Teach me your word and help me speak it out over my life daily. Amen. And just one last note to think about. The man in today's passage was not resurrected, which is what we'd ordinarily maybe use the word of. But he was actually just resuscitated, okay? He was, he was brought back to life. But he would one day die again. One day, we will all be resurrected, never to die again, because we get to live now and forever with the Father because of our faith in Jesus. Hallelujah. God bless you.